Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. Yeah, there was a point in my life where th things weren't going well. I was working a job in construction, which I didn't like. Um, but we, uh, so that, that week I, I lost my job. My truck blew up. We had just closed on a house, which I would have had, like, I really had no idea how I was going to pay for that house now. Um, and um, we just found out we were pregnant and we had 16 people coming for Thanksgiving. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Welcome back to the podcast, folks. You're listening to Wrestling Changed My Life. This is your host, Ryan Warner. My guest today, ladies and gents, is Wade Burgess. Wade is a businessman in the truest sense of the word. He was an early employee at LinkedIn and worked his way up. Before that, he was a wrestler at the University of Nebraska. He's been a CEO, and now he's the chief revenue officer at Rev.com down in Austin, Texas. Awesome guy here, folks. Really hope you enjoy the conversation. A little bit more business-focused, but it's always good to switch it up. Fan of the week is my man Parker Betts. That's at Jurassic Parker B on Twitter. Golf Breeze High School assistant wrestling coach. Parker, thanks for listening to the show, man. I appreciate it. Last but not least, if you want to support the show, give us a follow on Twitter, Wrestling Changed My Life, as well as Instagram, also Wrestling Changed My Life. We post clips of the interviews and do all kinds of pictures, and just check it out. Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, and Instagram, folks. That's it. Let's get you to the interview with Wade Burgess. Mr. Wade Burgess, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, thanks. It's good to have you back on. I think the first time we spoke, it was on another podcast I was running, a little bit more business focused, but what was that, four years ago now? I don't know. I have a tough time with calendars. It was a while ago. <laughs> a while ago. So you are a, a businessman. You're the chief revenue officer of Rev.com now. You've held a number of leadership positions at LinkedIn. We're going to talk about all that, but the reason you're here is that you were a wrestler at a young age. Let's talk about your origin story a little bit and get people to know who Wade is. Yeah, uh, great. So probably the most relevant, specifically as it relates to wrestling, is I have three older brothers. So there's like five, five kids in a family, three boys, uh, actually four boys, uh, if I can do the math right, and, and a girl. And I was uh, number, I have three older brothers and a younger sister. Okay. So what that essentially means, regardless of whether you're a wrestler or not, is you get wrestled. <laughs> so I had two of my older brothers. Um, we, we, I grew up on a ranch in the middle of nowhere in Missouri, fantastic upbringing, and then moved to Nebraska. We moved there. I was in grade school. And um, one of the sports 
that we started, my, my uh, brother Troy started initially wrestling and my brother Brian. And so uh, from sort of grade school on. And when you said you grew up on a ranch in Missouri, what was life like for you? Blue collar, white collar? No collars, uh, for the most part. Um, we had, you know, the, the ecosystem was my family and then my, my dad ranched with his father. So they're like, my grandparents were across the road. The nearest town was like 14 miles. And by town, I mean, 800 people. Yeah. So it was probably once a month or so interacting with others outside of our family unit. Once a month. So actually that's not true. So on a weekly basis, we would meet, we had like a church meeting with people, our neighbors that were maybe a mile away. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was a fantastic way to grow up. I mean, I, I would be on the back of the horse of my grandfather. Like when I was young enough, I know he would put diapers in his saddlebags and, you know, five, five thirty in the morning going out, watching the sun burn the mist off of the ponds and um, just a fantastic way to grow up and learn about um, life and death and reproduction, like all this stuff firsthand. Um, so it's interesting, like I, I never had the experience a lot of people do when they're kids of um, really being weirded out by going to a funeral or, you know, when you're in whatever age it is where they, you know, teach you about like, the birds and the bees and sex education and all that. That was just like normal stuff. Like I was already exposed to all the way in which nature works. So um, yet you grew up early, you know, you grew up like working. I, I worked from like, I don't know what age, as long as I can remember. And, um, you know, I never thought about hours either. There isn't a clock in, clock out. You're just, and there really is a blurry line between work and play. And did you love it as much as your family did? I did. It was a great way to grow up. I loved it. Yeah. And it was, um, it was just part of your identity. You know, you just did what you needed to do. Had a lot of horses. I loved horses. And, and um, you know, that was uh, kind of what we did. And when you say ranch, what were you raising cattle or raising crops? What does that mean? Uh, mostly cattle. Yeah. We had, um, you know, I should probably know this, but I think maybe a thousand acres or so. It was mostly cow calf operation, which for people that don't know, basically means we had, um, cows and then they would have uh, babies in the spring. They would have calves, would raise them, and then you sell the calves. And then the next year you'd have another set of calves. My grandfather was pretty innovative for the time. It was a very long time ago, but I think he was probably, he started in the late 60s, early 70s doing what's called artificial insemination. So they would bring in, um, you know, they'd crossbreed cattle from different European breeds or whatever it was. Um, at that time, that was a pretty cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to, you know, you could able to make, um, you know, more money um, by being able to do something that was, you know, beyond what others were able to do. So kind of thinking outside of the box. And, uh, you know, he always taught me, it's better to be captain of your own rowboat than first mate on a destroyer, like chart your own course. I love that. And that's, I'm seeing a, a lot of why, you know, a lot, a lot of who you are now makes sense because you had that foundation of work, but also doing things yourself, um, not being told what to do. And then in the background, you moved to Nebraska, your brothers are wrestling. When did it switch from you to just doing it versus you choosing to create your own path with it in wrestling college? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I sort of chose, you know, like it was something I chose to do pretty early on, but it was always something that I was challenged by my brothers and it was the same. Uh, my next oldest brother, Brian, we did all the sports. We did football, wrestling and pole vaulting um, all together. And we, you know, it was, 
going in before school and lifting weights together and then, you know, going to school and then working out afterwards. We were together a lot, which tended to, uh, it was, it was really good for me. My brother's like a really good example, like well-disciplined, you know, did great in school, like all of those things. So it was a standard I, I aspired to live up to and resented at the same time. Um, I never like to be told what to do. Still don't like being told what to do. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but definitely I started seeing what was possible when I started seeing him having some successes, you know, qualifying for state tournaments and things like that. When it really became my own, uh, you know, he was two years older. So when he graduated, I was a junior in high school. I'd created the disciplines. I'd created the work ethic, a lot of the skills. We went to camps in the summer together too. So we'd go to wherever the best people were at that time. It was, you know, Dan Gable's camp in Iowa. We went to, you know, camps in Colorado and Missouri and all over the place. Um, but when, when he was gone, he went to wrestle at Northwestern. Hmm. And then when I was in high school, um, then it was me. And I realized also there was a, there was a big leadership gap because my brother and his teammates were, were leaders on the team. And suddenly there was, a, there was a void and had to step up. That was, that was a real telling moment, I think, of um, is it going to be mine or is it just going to be something I do because you know, my brothers do it? And um, that was basically a really telling year for us because we'd always had great talent on our high school team but never really had a significant, you know, anything to show for it. You know, some state place winners and stuff, but we got a new coach that year. Hmm. And that was a pivotal moment for me. We'd had a really nice guy before who knew wrestling well. And then we had a person come in who was very soft-spoken and um, an English teacher. But what I learned later was also wrestled in the Marine Corps Ooh. and uh, put us through the type of rigor. We can talk about that later, but, uh, we ended up winning state championship that year. And just like it was, it was a life-changing moment. So I, I really became my own uh, that year. And one year like that, the team, I mean, maybe you guys were placers before, but to be a state championship team is a big deal. I don't know that, let me think about this. I don't think we even had any returning um, state qualifiers. Let me think about that. No. So my brother's class would have been two years ahead of us, had some really good kids on it. We ended up, this coach came in, um, Dave Ciccone, just fantastic individual. First of all, his first day, uh, when they were first, you know, the first day of practice, he said we were going to meet in his room. And I was pretty skeptical of like meeting in the English teacher's room instead of wrestling. He handed out piece, blank pieces of paper to all of us. And he said, I want you to write down three things you're going to accomplish this year. It was the first time in my life I ever had anyone had me write down a goal. Really? And, um, I, you know, I actually didn't know what to put down. One thing I remember, the only thing I remember I wrote down was, um, to give my very best every time I put step foot on the mat, mm. pretty vague, you know, didn't know much about goal setting, but I think I did that that year, but coach, you know, Ciccone, then he, after we did, he talked to us a little bit, we went down and we did a workout and, um, we worked out at the same time as the basketball team. And so it was, I don't know the time, let's call it five thirty or six. We were done well, the basketball team was done. We were done wrestling. And he said, put your running shoes on. So it was one, like, uh, that was the first moment I realized we were going to probably do a little more than we thought we were going to do. <laughs> and he disciplined us in a way, probably his military background. Um, but we did the same drills, you know, singles, doubles, high C's. We do a hundred a day. Every day, and if you if you look at Malcolm Gladwell's book about ten thousand repetitions, mm -hmm. 
100 a day, probably 100 days in the season. We probably did 10,000 reps of, of those. And we hated it. You know, we, we hated that repetition. We want to do the cool stuff and the new stuff, the fancy stuff. And uh, Sikoni wasn't having any of that. And we were also used to, I don't know if you had this, but previous coach, we always tapered down sort of like Thursday, you know, for the Saturday tournament. A little lighter practice. Friday was oh, yeah. a soft one. And then Saturday one. Uh, Sikoni, not like we went, it was just full on all the way through. And we'd go in, we were like, coach, like we're, he says, doesn't matter. Like this part of the season doesn't matter. We're going, we're wrestling through what matters is the end of the year. And we didn't win its tournament until we won. We had Nebraska had conference and then districts and then state. And we won all three of those. Um, we were just in better shape. Uh, a bunch of kids that weren't great at the beginning of the year, but, um, the headline in one of the state newspapers when we won it was like unranked, unregarded and unreal. Like wow. just a ragtag group of kids that pretty much outworked it. Did you have a lot of guys that year? Did you have a lot of kids at trit at the beginning? Oh yeah. A third of them probably in the first week, a third of the guys quit. Yeah. Was it overkill or was it what you guys needed? You think? Results would say that's what we needed. needed. <laughs> there was, you know, some people, when you face that kind of adversity and that kind of work ethic, uh, some people wilt and some people step up. And, um, you know, the, the saying that when your stomach meets your backbone, that's when courage happens. Mm. And um, it got to the point where we would discipline each other. Wow. You know, we, we had this one hallway we ran. It was like a circular thing we would run. And I remember middle of the season, there was a guy who did, he got by on a lot of natural talent and he was like ducking off in a corner instead of running an extra lap. And, uh, you know, he found himself in the middle of a trash can being rolled down the hallway by the rest of us at one point. <laughs> it was just like not having any of the sloughing off, like as a team, if we're going to do it, you're going to do it. Uh, it was really, you know, I think that was, that was an example of a coach showing people how to discipline themselves. And then, you know, we saw the results, you know, through the, through the season, we were basically hungry, tired, and angry. But when we saw what that led to, it was the first, I think first state championship team our high school had in any sport for several years. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of disproportionately good. And, um, and, you know, a lot of lessons. I still reflect on that in a lot of ways uh, when I'm putting teams together or when I'm doing something myself. What what about that do you reflect on outside of the pure work ethic? Because anyone can make kids run, but it seems like it was much more than that. Well, I, I think one of the things is like focus on the basics. Mm. A lot of times people want to do the new, creative, interesting thing. The fundamentals of almost any skill set are what matters. And getting that muscle memory so that or mental memory so that it's um, – your reactions are the emotions that you need. I think that was really important. I think the other thing is being really careful not to just uh, bet on natural talent. Mm-hmm. You know, hard work will beat talent when talent won't work. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, but the fundamental, and then delayed gratification. You know, I, I was cutting a ton of weight that year, like unwisely. So I was eating between 800 and a thousand calories a day, working out three times a day, you know, it's just not, not great. Um, but you realize what you can do, what you're capable of when you're in, in that mode. And then finally, I would say, um, be really conscious of what other people are going through. And, you know, I think I saw, I, you know, we had teammates who some came from really good home situations. Some came from 
really bad situations. Um, but when we all stepped on the mat together, we were a team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I saw the value added to the lives of people. I was fortunate. I had like a wonderful uh, parents and, and siblings and stuff, but a lot of them didn't. And I saw what that team added to their life, not just there, but beyond and, and how their life has gone since then. Um, and I've thought about that in business and in other settings that you can make a big difference in somebody's life by giving them something positive to focus on, work toward, get some wins in their life and they can break out. Oh, yeah. They're not a victim of the past. You know, they can change create new cycles for themselves and, and for their family for generations if they just learn how to think differently. And that holds true with any walk of life where you never know what the other person has going on in their life. You know, you may meet yeah. someone on the street and they're real rude to you. Maybe they just got divorced, right? You never know what that person's going through. And so when you think about all those lessons you learned during that, especially that year, I mean, man, that's, I didn't know that, that story. Can we jump forward to the one, was it a Thanksgiving week where you had a number of um, unfortunate events that you blogged about? I just, it's not that I like talking about the bad times, but I do because it reminds me that someone like you, who's successful, you're doing really well as a great family, that even you have gone through peaks and valleys. And I think as as the people listening to this are, some of them are interested in business. I think they'll they'll be curious to hear this story. So where are uh, yeah, that was, uh, if I ever write a book about my life, that'll be, that chapter will be called One Week in November. Um, yeah, I mean, success, or I, and I was thinking, but character is not built on a mountaintop. Like, if you're not going through valleys, you're not growing. But yeah, I mean, I've had a, a few things. I mean, everybody's gone through things. I don't put mine that highly, but there, were, there was a week where, um, yeah, there was a point in my life where th- things weren't going well. I was working a job in construction, which I didn't like. Um, but we, uh, so that, that week I, I lost my job. My truck blew up. We had just closed on a house, which I would have had, like, I really had no idea how I was going to pay for that house now. Um, and, um, we just found out we were pregnant and we had 16 people coming for Thanksgiving. <laughs> so <laughs> it, was a, it was a pretty major week, uh, other than not having transportation, a job or a way to pay for my house and, uh, you know, support all these people coming in. It was, it was a good week, but yeah, it was, um, what's funny is like, I look at that now and every one of those things was a positive. How do you mean? Didn't seem like it at the time, but so like I, I hated construction and it was at that moment where I realized it was the best favor I ever had because that's when I actually moved into technology sales and sort of my, my career of what it is now would not have been possible if that wouldn't have happened. Um, I clearly hated the vehicle. <laughs> upgrade that. Um, it was our, our first child. Like we were, we were pregnant with our, our son, uh, Micah. He's like a fantastic kid. I mean, like just, just a blessing in our life. And like, clearly that was a good thing. Um, it's wonderful to be able to hope. Like if you look at everything that happened that was a negative, all of them turned out to be positives. And I think that idea that every adversity holds a seed to an equal or greater benefit. Yeah, you know, I can point back to that. And, and I think almost anyone, you could do the same thing with your life. I'm sure that some of the negatives at the time, the most painful points you look back and go, wow, that actually turned out to be a, an important pivot for me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, were you not in sales at all before that? Were you like a laborer? I was a laborer. Now, there's a little bit of an asterisk. I've always had side hustles. Sure. I had business, I had a direct sales business at the time and health and wellness. Um, I had... Um, been entrepreneurial, had several businesses. I was in construction, basically. My, my bro- uh, one of my brothers and I 
had a construction business prior to that mm -hmm. and then ended up later working for a guy and I was working for that guy at the time. But um, yeah, things weren't going well. <laughs> like it was, it was not an ideal state and I was like literally pouring concrete for a living. So wow, not, not perfect. And it's, it's dangerous to get into a path where you have obligations and so you have to have some standard of income and you can't take the risk. So you were right at that crux where three months down the road, you may be, were, would have been a construction person forever. Who knows? I mean, probably not because you're so driven, but you know, like the, the people who start getting debt and they accumulate things and they have to keep the job they hate just to maintain all their possessions. You know, that gets to be a scary place and you're kind of locked in and feel trapped. But luckily this kind of happened to you right at that juncture. No, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. And that, that point getting locked in to material things is one of the worst things in life. Like I, I know this podcast doesn't have anything to do with that really, but I mean, giving yourself options is one of the most wise things you can do in life and being burdened with stuff, especially, you know, like status is usually buying things you can't afford with money. You don't have to impress people you don't like. Mm -hmm. And most people get stuck in that trap. And it's not just, there are other ways that we trap ourselves into like, this is my identity. I'm a this or I'm a that. Like, no, you're not. You can do anything you want to do. Whatever you put your mind to do, you can become and break out of that. And I think, um, you know, a lot of times we paint ourselves into a corner um, without having the flexibility and freedom to go take intelligent risks because, you know, we've, we've cut the margin too thin. Yeah. No, it's, it's so important. And I mean, this is a wrestling podcast, but we cover a lot of terrain. And one of the things I, I absolutely wanted to hit on was morning after Monday morning after Thanksgiving, right? You had all the family there. You probably even forgot about some of the negative stuff because your family's around. You're having some drinks. You're having food. Monday morning, everyone leaves though. And you're sitting at home, no job. I know how hard it is to break into technology sales at the beginning, but once you're in, you're in. So how did you go about getting your first gig? Uh, Monday morning after Thanksgiving, I wasn't at home. Okay. I was in the office of a recruiter, which by the way, I didn't even know what recruiters were really, but I'd had a guy to this, through this direct sales business I'd had, who was somebody I'd worked with, who had worked with another person working. So I was on the phone. I was like, one thing like back to work ethic, I learned how to hustle. And so I ended up talking to a guy who worked for our staffing firm and somehow he got me an audience with the guy that owned the company. I had no really nothing. I didn't have a resume or any of that. Um, and he ended up, I booked, basically I sold another meeting. <laughs> I, I, I pitched myself. He's like, you're going to have to come back and you have to have a resume and you have to, it looks like this and this and this. I'm like, okay, I can do that. And I had enough sort of things I could put together that made it look good on paper. Like most of us, like <laughs> your LinkedIn profile is probably a little bit of BS, you know, yeah. but, oh, yeah. but it, it looked good enough to make it look like I wasn't a total loser. And um, he got me a meeting. He says, I can get you a meeting, but you're going to have to sell yourself. And, but you know, I, I, threw, I don't know how many calls, but, and in that meeting, what's funny, funny story about that. He booked this meeting. I went down and I met with this company. This is at the time when this is a really long time ago when the world was flat and everything was black and white. And, uh, there was, there were internet companies that were competing, were like selling businesses, internet connectivity. And I knew nothing about that, like zero, but I went down and I met with the hiring manager and I just happened to note that she was in a sorority at University of Nebraska where I went. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about the Greek system either. Um, but a guy who was on a wrestling team there was a captain of the team, a guy named Chris Nelson, who was like a stellar guy. And I knew that his wife had been in a sorority there. 
And somehow, like I can't remember, she mentioned something about her sorority. And I just asked, I name dropped. I'm like, did you happen to know? And I, I mentioned this woman's name. She's like, oh my God. And started talking about her sorority sister. And how do you know her? And I'm like, well, she married, you know, a, a guy I have a lot of respect for, Chris. And she, oh, Chris is like the greatest guy. We started this conversation and then I broke in and I was able to have a conversation with her as a person. Yeah. I don't even know how much of the job we talked about, but uh, I left that meeting. I called the recruiter back and told him how the conversation went. And he goes, oh, that's terrible. Like you, you didn't talk about the job. You didn't like, nope, none of that. And anyway, she called back later and offered me the job. Yeah. So, but, so I, I have no assets about the job, but um, I knew enough about people, I guess, that I got in the door and then, uh, you know, I went to work on learning again, like knew nothing about the industry, but, but I can work and I can read and I can learn and, you know, have that growth mindset. Um, and that really then took the technology sales career. That's where it started. This is such a platitude, but the ability to learn is really, man, it's just invaluable, you know, to be able to look something up and say, you got to figure out how to do this. Well, you're going to do whatever you got to do to, to research it and just be able to find your way. Yeah. And I think with, you know, you know, how, how it correlates to wrestling, uh, you know, I, I watch these guys and especially like coaching kids club or whatever, and you have somebody who's like a, a good folk style wrestler. And it, you, if you throw them right on the mat in Greco, I remember the first time my brother, my oldest brother, we didn't even know about freestyle. We were just done folk style. And I don't know, we were in grade school. We went to this freestyle tournament. He went in and shot a single in his mind. He was shot a single leg and wasn't able to land it. The guy turned him, 10 boned him and tech him. Yeah. He had no idea what happened. He's like, nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, you just lost, bud. Well, if you don't know what you're doing, clearly you can get beat at anything in life. But if you take somebody who's good at one style and you get a good coach and they can learn another style, they'll do well. Mm-hmm. And, and even cross-functionally, maybe, you know, if somebody's a good, uh, you know, good at judo or any of the martial arts, they can probably be a good wrestler. And I think the same is true in business or in life. You know, take your victories from one thing, apply them to something else. You can accomplish, you know, you can learn almost anything. Almost everything out there is teachable. Yeah. Especially once you've, you know, mastered one particular thing, it, it just shows you and gives you the confidence that you can do that with anything. And yeah. the thing I am passionate about wrestling but i also love sales and i think growing up no one talks about sales as a real business uh, like a real career path and i remember the first time i told my mom that i wasn't going to law school and i was going to be in sales and she's like you're going to be a used car salesman i'm like no mom i'm living in san francisco these are real business people these are real professionals you know no one knows about sales i don't think as a real profession why do you think um wrestlers or not even wrestlers but athletes do so well in a b2b tech sales environment it's probably the same fundamental mental cycles mm. that make you great at a sport or in music or in the arts yep. or anything that is output related i think the inputs that go in and the delayed gratification and the discipline lead to great results you can look at anyone who's like a classical musician They've probably played the basic fundamentals of that instrument so many times. That's why they're great. And the mm -hmm. same could be true of a wrestler or of a gymnast or any, anything out there. And I think what makes people great, and specifically technology sales, I think it's anything, is there's a set of fundamentals that you have to understand. 
selling is probably more of a science than an art. A lot, I think a lot Couldn't of people agree have more. perception that they think selling is like being <laughs> a great schmoozer or whatever. Like, okay, maybe 30 years ago, you know, when selling was about, you know, golfing and smoking cigars or whatever. Um, not true at all today. No. Where there's a set of things that have to happen in the human interaction, there's a science involved. And I think if you can apply yourself to those basics, you can become really good at it. I think there's also something about integrity and honesty that I can relate to sports. I can't relate to a lot of other disciplines, but you can't cheat anybody, uh, you know, with your disciplines. Yeah. As an aside, I'm like in a rental house that has a landline. It's <laughs> <laughs> a landline. Wait, I'm telling you, every time I, I do a podcast, I've been doing a lot of in-person ones lately for a documentary, and that's where I really make sure there's no noise distractions. Every time a landscaper will come, the grandfather clock will go oh. off. The landline, though, that's a new one. I haven't heard that in a while. It's like, like well, and this house is decorated very much like a landline owner would decorate a house. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty funny. But uh, yeah, you know what, what? As an aside, one thing I love about the pandemic is I don't care if you're the CEO of a publicly traded company or if you're like, uh, you know, temporary receptions. Every, it brings everyone together. We're all in each other's living rooms. Yeah. And it really humanizes the interaction of people. I, I kind of like that a lot. Um, I also like how much time we're spending with our families too. Absolutely. You know, with our everyone's families. around and each other. You, you get that uninterrupted time with people. Um, there's so many benefits. You know, that's probably true of anything, but back to the adversity creates benefits. There have been so many benefits from this pandemic where all, most of the extemporary like noise and meaningless stuff in life, a lot of it went away mm -hmm. and you're around people. Now, there are a lot of people who are, you know, uh, single or live by themselves and it creates a sense of loneliness and a sense of, you know, separation. I think it's important to be thoughtful about, you know, reaching out and making sure that human interactions there, but, but in general, there have been some good things. Yeah. Also not wasting a lot of money doing stupid stuff. That's the thing too. And the, the commute times are, I don't commute anyway, but the people who do commute, I just, I think that's the worst way to spend your, your day. And hopefully that's done. Um, to tie it back to the, just real quick on the sales thing. The one piece that I think in, yeah, to, of your, to your point, musician, artist, it's all the same. We know athletics. That's what we're going to focus on. The thing about sales though, and why to me, wrestlers make great salespeople. It's the instant feedback loop and the self-awareness because you're going to have, wins and losses throughout the day, whether you're trying to prospect someone and, you, and they tell you they, they don't want to talk to you, right? Or you're cold calling or you have a meeting. You know, it's constant feedback all day long and how you see that feedback and how honest you can be with it, to me, is the predictor of success in a lot of things, especially sales though. I totally agree. That honesty thing, and that's, this is one of the things I think directly correlates to wrestling. I don't think I've ever had uh, somebody who had been a good wrestler uh, and moved into say, I don't think I've ever had them complain about the quality of the leads or the product features or the time of day or it's the holiday season, all this external stuff that salespeople complain about. It does, one of the things about wrestling is it's an intellectually honest sport. Mm -hmm. If you got beat, you got beat. I mean, there's a few people that will blame the ref every once in a while, but for the most part, it's you and your opponent. There aren't any, there's no equipment. There's no, I mean, it's like very raw truth. You either score points or don't score points. Like you win or you lose. And it's everyone's looking at you. I don't care if there's 10,000 people in the auditorium or zero. It's you and that opponent. 
Mm. And I think that as you apply that into sales, it's, uh, you know, that's, that's sell, selling. Like, there are very few external circumstances that can keep someone who wants to be great from being great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you think about your career, you really cut your teeth at LinkedIn and really rose through the ranks. You lived in London, I believe. You held you know, several super high-level positions. But something you said earlier jumped out to me as you, know, you were a bit of an entrepreneur, right? Your family kind of did their own thing. Um, you didn't like being told what to do. Now you're a chief revenue officer, so you're running your own gig. But how did you, serve, not survive, but how did you deal with working in a massive company uh, for 10 years, kind of being a part of that machine? Or was LinkedIn not big enough that whole time? Well, yeah, the good news is I joined it before it became that. Um, okay, although gotcha. what's really great, I went to work for LinkedIn. I was employee number 292, but I think we had less than 200 employees when I joined as a turnover, somewhere in there. And yet it was the biggest company I'd ever worked for. Hmm. I was in Omaha, Nebraska. I was hired as an individual contributor rep to a team of probably 20 or so salespeople total, something like that, maybe 30. And um, I still thought it was big. It was a big California company. Um, but it didn't have any of the corporate nonsense that you know big companies have. So, so I was able to join that and then be kind of, uh, I moved pretty quickly. I think within nine months, that was my third job, uh, simultaneously holding many of them. You know, and, and as we grew, I was able to, at least in the subsystem that I was living in, um, be a little bit of the captain of my own rowboat. I will tell you this though, um, through that experience, I had to learn what was important and what wasn't important. I, I did get annoyed with what I would consider corporate nonsense. Yeah. And yeah. then I also understood some of it like, oh, this is actually important. And getting that context was really, you know, the things that I thought were important or my opinions aren't the only way to look at things. Actually, living outside of the country, you know, that I was born in was really helpful to me and that I'd really never traveled internationally at all. And suddenly I like sold everything, moved my family to, you know, Europe and started building out offices in places where I only speak one language, you know, and I speak that moderately well. And I found myself one time sitting in Dublin, starting up our inside sales team. I think we were speaking 12 languages at the time and I was just listening and I realized I actually don't know any of these languages. I don't know how to, how am I going to coach someone when I don't even know what they're saying and doing. And I got to this point of starting to realize I didn't know. And that was a really good moment for me because I realized I don't need to know. I need to know the core of things that are important to me. I need to rely on other people to give me important feedback, realize that I am a part of a larger system. I'm a subsystem of that. So I realized I'm gonna control what I can control, but I'm gonna rely on, on other people. And then collaboration really stood off the page to me of like learning how to play well with others. So in, wrestling is an individual sport and I was an individualist. I wouldn't like that. Lone wolf. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not, but I realized, okay, but there are other people around me and they think differently. And the same is true with, you know, as a leader, I realized I was limiting who could be successful if I was only attracting people that looked, thought, and believed like me. Yeah. So I had to open that aperture up and realize, yeah, like the general ideas around diversity, inclusion, and belonging, for example, that's just a way to build a better team, a broader team with different strengths and skills and ideas. And once I realized to get outside of my own thinking and incorporate others, uh, it, it was really helpful. Not that I had to rely on them. It was that 
that we relied on each other to be to be successful. So I think I learned that um, being a part of some, something small that went something very large, I didn't have to put up with, if you will, like the big corporate stuff. I actually needed to add to it mm. and realize, like, instead of fitting into a culture, like helping shape it in a way that you know, in the way that I could. I'd tell you what, that's one thing where I struggle to this day, whether it's in my relationship or any clients I have is the communication. I like to just run, get it done. And if there's mistakes, we'll clean it up later. But I think what you just said is something super important that um, a lot of people, I think, struggle with when they come from an individualistic sport. Yeah, it, it, it is harder, but also realizing that, you know, um, I think it was Lincoln, President Lincoln that said, uh, every man is my superior in some way. And in that, I will learn of him. Yeah. Clearly, that's gender neutral. Like, that's true. Men and women, like, you learn from any circumstance, any situation. And I think people who struggle with that, um, one thing as wrestlers we have to do is, like, get off of our arrogance. Yeah. Yeah, it is about us, but life's not about us. Like, when it's on the mat, it's you and the other person. But, you know, one of the reasons that you're on that mat is you've had how many coaches in your life? Bad parents taking you to and from, you've had teammates helping you get better. There's a whole group of people that contributed towards why you're where you are. And while the sport itself might be sort of on the mat, your life isn't. Yeah. And there's a lot of people around you. And the same is true in whether you're an entrepreneur, you know, sole proprietor, or whether you're working in a hundred thousand person organization, we all rely on each other. And now what, once you, once you kind of take all of that, your, your business, and then you say, all right, well, Wade's also got a great family. I know your kids wrestle. I want to shift and kind of wrap down with wrestling and current events. What are you seeing now with the RTC movement, with youth wrestling, with women's wrestling that excites you and has really changed since you were a wrestler yourself? Um, I don't know if it's my perspective of the sport, uh, but I like how international the sport is. And, and, and again, like that might just be like, I'm understanding it more. Um, but I like it's, it's such a unifying thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was a, a few years ago when the uh, Team USA was, uh, it was very close to not being able to go to Iran to wrestle. Yeah. And I remember Jordan Burroughs and others really pushing for that. And, and I watched like all of this like political strife and yet the wrestlers all wanted to be together. They wanted it to be glo- like it, the borders didn't exist. I, I like that um, sort of unification of a group of people that like it get politics aside, you get economic society. It's that. Uh, and then if you take it on a more local level, you look at organization like Beat the Streets in Chicago, well, in lots of different places, Beat the Streets Chicago with Mike Powell and team and what they're able to do and, and empower youth to channel energies in a positive way and build character and learn all those things that we talked about earlier in this conversation um, to their lives and maybe break out of, of tough situations. Yeah. So I am starting to understand that the what you do is less important than who you become. Love that. So, and I know. Yeah. I see wrestling as a way of becoming a better person and, you know, essentially creating a better world and at least in the world that we live in. And let's wind down with this. There's a lot of a lot of parents that listen, but also a lot of a lot of twenty um, you know, somethings that are listening. You are someone who's had a tremendous success in the business world, and anyone would be happy with a fraction of your success. Um, share your thoughts on you know a twenty something right now who hasn't really found their path yet. You know, any career advice you might share with them that you tell your kids or that you would tell 
your younger self even that you had no idea about when you were in your 20s? Well, I think I'd be thoughtful about defining success. Mm. So, you know, um, one definition I like a lot, Jeff Weiner talks about success being, you know, excited to go to work in the morning, excited to go home in the evening. I think that's a good professional, you know, uh, definition. But I would say that success, um, is a lot of it is about building the right relationships in your life. What's going to make you happy is the way it's having strong and healthy relationships, number one, with yourself, and number two, with those around you. And you're going to attract what you are, not what you want. So I would invest in self to become a better person. Becoming a better person will give you better skills to be able to become a better professional. And it's um, the balance between the head and the heart. If you're all mind, you're going to be heartless. And if you're all heart, you're probably going to be brainless. You know, like <laughs> balancing those two is really important. And, you know, I think um, it's important. I can tell you, like, one of the most decisions, one of the most important decisions you'll probably make is the partner you choose. If you choose a partner in life, and that will define a lot of who you are and a lot of the happiness in life and who, you know, who you choose, a lot of it's dependent on who you are. Mm -hmm. And if you define like, who do you want? Well, who do they want? Become that person. Um, but I think professionally, it's a long arc. Like the short term, you know, maybe I'll, I'll say this, eat your vegetables. And what I mean by that is make the decisions that are going to be long-term good for you. The short-term temptation of a sugar high, that's a pro, you know, like yeah. use that analogy for any part of life, um, leads to a crash. So thinking about those things, make the choices. They're going to be healthier mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially. Those decisions that you make have a compounding effect over time. You make good decisions now, your 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond are going to be fantastic. You make bad decisions now, you can be digging out of a hole the rest of your life. And I think it all starts with challenging the definition of success, because if everything you do, we would assume is to be successful. Well, what does that mean to you? And if you're taking someone else's definition, everyone thinks of money right away, right? And there's nothing wrong with making money. And maybe that is your definition of success. I wouldn't recommend it, but you got to have money to do a lot of things. So I think just yeah. challenging that right away is a, is a great way to start. No one even thinks about that. I know I didn't. Yeah, I'll, I'll close with this idea. So this is a, a story from my grandfather. There was, a, uh, there was an old man and he had an old mule and this mule had worked with him for a long time. Mule walked along, fell in an empty well, down to the bottom of the well. The man looked down, he knew there was no way to get it out. And so he thought, well, the only thing I'm gonna do is it's time to bury the mule. And he invited his neighbors over to help him bury this old mule in this empty well. So they came over and they started putting, digging a shovel full of dirt and dumping it down uh, onto the mule. But, but what ended up happening is when that down in the well, the mule pile of dirt fell on him. He would just shake it off a little bit and step up. And the next shovel full came down. He would shake it off, shake it off and step up. Obviously what ended up happening after hundreds of shovelfuls of dirt, the mule shook it off, stepped out of the well and walked away. And I think that's such a good analogy that like, what do you do? Like you're going to be in these moments where like, stuff happens, you know, the dirt's falling on you, you shake it off, you step up, like eventually you'll step out of that situation and having that mindset that like things are going to happen. Life's going to be imperfect, shake it off and step up. You know, the, the Brits say, keep calm and carry on. You don't get too worked out when things, when don't get too worked up when things don't work out. Love that that. If, you, if you keep discipline, you keep focused in the same way you have with the sport of wrestling, that that success will end up happening. The difference in life, I think, than in wrestling 
is there's not a time limit. Like the whistle doesn't stop and it's over. Mm-hmm. If you're behind, you still have a chance to win. Love it. Wait, thank you very much for your time, sir. It's been a real pleasure to know you these past four or five years. I'm glad we could get you connected with Mike Powell and even better to have you on here. Thank you again. Thanks, Ryan. Great to see you, man. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, text WRESTLE to 555-888. That's WRESTLE to 555-888. You can also find us on Instagram, Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner, as well as our website, WrestlingChangedMyLife.com. Take care, y'all.